0: Get your quote today at progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And welcome in, Lake Kick is live. It is Sunday night, October 16th, the Overlord 2022. Just on the heels of the most memorable Saturday of my college football existence. They told you the renaissance season ended. It just continued. Kind of a 2.0 situation here right now. We are jam-packed high atop a rainy, but eventful downtown Nashville, Tennessee, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. As you know, we were there yesterday in Knoxville. We've got wall-to-wall reaction, Bama, Tennessee. We're gonna talk about the other big games because we had field stormings. Quite literally, from coast to coast, it was that kind of Saturday. Sort of an Every Given Saturday vibe in college football yesterday. We've got major shakeups to come. I don't think the chaos is nearly finished yet. I don't think the picture is nearly as complete. In fact, I think it's even hazier today than it was going into the weekend. That's what makes for a good season, by the way. We've got a major Every Given Saturday Tour announcement tonight. Where are we headed in week eight? We'll let you know in about 30 minutes. I got two early best bets for you. I don't want to waste a whole lot of time in the intro. We got so much to get to. They're watching us. I bet they are in Knoxville, Tennessee tonight, in New Haven, Connecticut, Cabot, Arkansas, Dallas, Texas. I just want to encourage every one of you if you don't already follow on Instagram, it's saved over there so you can do it at your leisure. At Late Kick Josh, make sure you're following. When we go on the road, as we do every week, I make sure to have the iJosh close by, pending battery charged. And I normally get about, oh, I would say, what, Colin, 15, maybe 20 videos, some behind the scenes stuff. We're on the sideline for the game, so I get a lot of good access for you. I had 25 videos by halftime yesterday, and it only got got larger in the second half. Everything that we saw yesterday, that entire experience is documented over there. I already made it its own little story highlight, so you can watch it again whenever you want to. That's the kind of stuff we give you on Instagram. We don't show it to you here. Uh, contractually, we can't show it to you anywhere else, at Late Kick Josh, Make sure you're following there. Okay. My goodness, let's get into the show. Thank you so much for being tuned in. Uh, go ahead and beat the rush. Like the video already if you haven't, and subscribe to the channel. <sighs> I could picture three words driving back from Knoxville last night to Nashville, and the three words kept ringing in my head. And those three words that I knew I would lead the show off with tonight are, now you know. I talked all week about this rivalry, this Alabama-Tennessee rivalry, this third Saturday in October and what it once was and how maybe an entire generation up to and including people my age didn't really get it. But the older folks did get it. The history books got it. When you read the history of college football and the SEC, there would be a massive gap missing if you didn't tell the story of this rivalry. But you didn't know about it until last night. And some people finally found out why this thing used to be the premier rivalry in the SEC, and when it's right, it could be again. I don't want to go all James Earl Jones on you, but that includes the Iron Bowl. That includes Georgia, Florida. That includes Tennessee, Florida. This one right here, LSU-Bama, that one, that one. If both teams are on top, if both teams are ranked like they were going into last night, that's the kind of stuff you can get. So the first thing I want to tell you is that's a small taste of the reason this rivalry used to dominate this conference. Now, as for the game last night, Tennessee 52, Alabama 49. This is the best regular season game I've ever witnessed in person. It's the loudest environment I've ever witnessed in person. I could not believe the sustained roar, the sustained decibel level, if you want to call it that, uh, that Neyland Stadium was at last night. But then again, I could believe it because I said going in and got sizable criticism for it on certain message boards. I didn't think anyone on Bama's roster had quite dealt with an environment like they were going to face last night. Now, I listened to Nick Saban in the postgame, and in a rare move, for me, I'm going to disagree with him. He said, oh, crowd noise didn't have much to do with us having 17 penalties for 130 yards tonight. Let me put it another way. Here's padlock stat number one for you. Bama had more total yards and penalties than they had total yards rushing. If you don't think that the environment they played in last night contributed to that, I think you're in denial a little bit. and. That's all I'll say about that. Phenomenal atmosphere. If you have an agnostic or a casual fan out there that you need to introduce to our great sport, it's the greatest on earth. Just show them that game last night. Just show them the I don't even have to show them the whole thing. Just show them the fourth quarter. Just show them the post-game, for all I care. That's gonna bring someone to the table. And if it doesn't bring him to the table, you don't really have a friend there. You have a lost cause. I remember growing up, we would study various things in geography and whatnot. And I remember when we got to the Hoover Dam unit, this may have been second grade, fourth grade, I don't know, but first time I ever saw the Hoover Dam, while everyone else was impressed by the majesty and the scale of it, I, knowing that it was holding back, I think, the Colorado River, I thought to myself, what would it take to break that thing? And last night, metaphorically, of course, we saw the equivalent in fandom, of the Hoover Dam finally broken. Because there was about 15 years of pain built up. There was 15 years of rage built up, 15 years of unused cigars built up for that matter. And then with one field goal, everything changed and the dam broke and when it broke, it spilled figuratively and then literally all over the playing surface of Neyland Stadium. Uh, this is from the iJosh and from the iColin Yes, Director Colin, unbeknownst to some of you, you met him yesterday, was on the field. Uh, I was standing on Bama's bench filming this. If you're listening on YouTube, just picture, like the Titanic, a goalpost sinking into a sea of orange instead of nighttime blue. You can never imagine what this is like unless you live it, unless you're there. We are so blessed to be able to do this. There is not a job on planet Earth that's better than this, that lets us do this, and pays us in the meantime to do it. Uh, This is the aftermath, and this is, again, the iJosh filming the goalposts taken out of Neyland Stadium. Some say that goalpost is floating down the river somewhere, and they say it because there's video evidence of that happening. I want to congratulate everybody in that fan base because you guys waited a long time, and my observation, I'm about to get into the game, my observation was very, very first person there, and I saw 60-year-old folks. And I saw 16-year-old folks, I probably saw a few six-year-old folks. I mean, I'm pretty sure I saw two kids toast beer several years underage, but it is what it is. They were pretty lenient last night, as you could imagine. Congratulations to all you guys. But you got the Bama win. Sometimes on this show, people ask, what do I need to do to get one of these? You know, for example, a chalice of supremacy. And I tell you guys, they're not for sale, and I don't just give them away, you gotta earn them. But then you ask, how do I earn a chalice of supremacy? And I say, I don't know. You just know it when you see it. Well, we had out of those 102,000 folks, many of whom were on the field, one member of our audience, Jared, we'll call him because that's his name. He found me on the field in the middle of all the chaos. You want to know how you earn a chalice of supremacy? I'm going to pause. Colin's going to double box this, and I want you to listen to this exchange. Take me and pay, and pay state material. This is pay state material right here. This is pay state material. And as of today, Jared has a chalice of supremacy on his way. Not literally today. We'll ship it tomorrow. But I'll get it to New Meredith. New Meredith will get it to him. Think about that. After 15 years, basically his entire existence, the first thing he thought about when he ran on the field, shirtless, great physique, by the way. I don't know what they're doing in Knoxville. Keep it up, Jared. The first thing he thought was to find a cell phone and yell, state material in it. And that it was. Early fourth quarter, I thought the biggest point in this game was when Bama was on a 25-6 run, okay? So Tennessee gets out of that huge lead and then Bama starts responding and responding and responding. They're on a 25-6 run and they're up. And then Hendon Hooker, as he seemingly did all afternoon, hits Jalen Hyatt. 78-yard touchdown. That's abnormal, it's atypical. If you've watched Alabama under Saban for a long time, sometimes they've gotten down. But when they start responding, They respond in sort of tidal wave fashion, and you're done. So basically, when they deliver their knockout blow, it's supposed to do just that. It's supposed to knock you out. Well, Tennessee took their shot, and then they responded right across Bama's jaw. Now, that alone didn't determine the outcome of the game, but what it did show is it showed resolve. It showed fight. It showed a lot of the stuff you hope you have, and you can talk about having it SEC media days, and you can talk about having it when you play FCS competition or inferior competition. You don't really know. Until you get in that situation, you don't really know. And then you find out. And once you find out, it's a really good feeling. Because then, that's a team you're comfortable going to war with every week. Doesn't matter if you're the second most talented roster. The most talented roster didn't win last night. Uh, Tennessee won. And afterwards, Josh Heupel made it a point. Almost in a casual manner. Not that kind of casual. But in a casual manner to say, we're not where we want to be yet. Uh, We've only kind of just begun some of the building blocks that will eventually be this program, recruiting, you know, we're not close to where we want to be yet. Uh, this talent roster, we're not close to where we want to be yet. And I want to remind you guys something, as you watch this team able to pull off what they did in year two under Josh Heupel, they did not do what USC did. I'm not faulting USC. I'm just saying you watched Lincoln Riley go into USC and they took like 50 kids out of the transfer portal. It seemed like Tennessee didn't do that. They didn't overhaul their roster via the portal. These are largely the same guys Jeremy Pruitt brought on campus. A vast majority of that roster you saw last night, of that team you saw last night, those are Jeremy Pruitt's players. Now, Pruitt brought in some really good players. Too good in some cases. But that's what he won with last night. And that's what he is winning with. And you found out you had the intangibles, I thought, if you didn't know already, early in the fourth quarter. Then you have the back and forth. I thought for a long time, when Alabama made one of the most horrific special teams blunders I've seen in big-time college football games, I thought we were going to end up having a one-possession final. And if it went the way of Tennessee, that's what everyone was going to look back on. Almost such that I was standing next to Bill Martin, the SID there at Tennessee in the end zone, when they put the ball on the ground and Dallas Turner scoops it up, he scores. And I turned to Bill and I said, all right, turnover stuff's even now. So it's just going to be better team wins the game. I don't have to listen to excuses from either side, at least when it comes to turnovers, because they evened out. And then we just had a football game on our hands. I couldn't be more impressed. I'm just going back to that point in time. I couldn't be more impressed because I've seen time and time again, Bama deal that knockout blow and it leaves you on the mat for the 10 count. But I want to go to the other side. I mean, we, we got we got the winner that we talk about first on this show Tennessee and I'm going to circle back around again and talk about Tennessee in just a second but as you can imagine anytime Alabama loses a lot of folks want to make the story about Alabama and I get that it's the same with Ohio State it's the same with Clemson it's the same with Georgia uh, it was the same with Southern Cal yesterday and I understand why that is these are mega brands um let me Kind of as tactfully as I can, revisit a quote that I've gotten a lot and I heard a lot. And uh, there are a lot of people after this game saying, "Man, I can't believe Tennessee did to Alabama's defense what they did." And I just want to tell you what the dirty little secret is. If you've been paying attention, you should already know. Tennessee didn't do anything to Alabama's defense that wasn't well on the way to happening to Alabama's defense in week two. When Ewers doesn't get hurt at Texas in week two, they probably hang a very, very frighteningly similar number on Alabama. This has been coming for a few weeks now. It's been coming for the entire season. It's no coincidence that happened last night. It's no coincidence, for example, that you watch one guy disproportionately rack up the kind of career day he did. Jalen Hyatt had six catches yesterday, five of them found their way to the checkerboard. Why is that? Well, uh, stack sets and formations and being able to match him up on a safety with a number two on his back. That was largely the day for Tennessee. Uh, there were no special numbers, particularly in the receiving column outside of Jalen Hyatt, but then again, Josh Heupel didn't need anything else. It's kind of a beautiful thing. It's an ugly thing if you're a Bama fan, but it's a beautiful thing if you're a Tennessee fan to watch your coach exploit a matchup, and then you would think adjustments are coming, and you would think that, okay, well, what got him in the first half we'll probably won't be able to go back to that well in the second half. Yeah, they did. And again, and then again, one more time for good measure. And I don't really know, you know, I was talking to a few people on the way home last night. Some of them just know the game. Some of them coach the game. And, you know, my first question was, what did you think about Alabama's defensive approach? And they said, look, that's a really good player, Jalen Hyatt there. But um, two has no business on him, manned up. And so I'm not the defensive coordinator around here. You guys know I never pull the grease board down. I never X and O you and explain why that coaching staff got it wrong. I'm just telling you. If anyone watched Alabama and Tennessee yesterday, and you thought, yeah, two on 11 there, I like that matchup. The only person saying that was Josh Heupel. The only person saying that uh, was probably wearing orange and white, and it worked out for Tennessee big time. This other stat that's floating around, probably the padlock stat of the year, I would say, Colin. I didn't know that this was already out there because I haven't watched anything all day. Tennessee hangs 52 in regulation. Looked like overtime was coming our way, but we don't go to overtime. Tennessee puts 52 up in regulation, so let's dive in. You know, let's let's just um, let's figuratively pull out our history book and let's lick our index finger. Let's dive into the annals of Alabama football. When's the last time they gave up 52 or more in a game? Was it 2007? No. 97? No. 47? No. 27? No. It was that classic 1907 showdown, Alabama versus Sewanee. Alabama fell that day. 54 to 4 and that friends is the last time they gave up this many points Let me rephrase not rephrase. Let me repeat for those of you who may have just been passively listening The last time they gave up this many points was in 1907 against Sewanee 07, 07, 07 let it echo let it reverberate a little bit. That is brutal 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 brutal. Okay, so let me get back to Tennessee. Got a couple more things said about Alabama here. This is a performance, I think, that caught the nation's attention. Up until this point, everything Tennessee has done, I think to most people nationally, has been a nice feel-good story, but you have not taken them seriously as a college football playoff contender or, or truthfully as an SEC championship contender. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but if you didn't already, I think you're a lot more likely to take them seriously now as of this morning, the updated odds to win the SEC championship look like this. Georgia's minus 130, Bama's plus 170, and Tennessee's now plus 450. Obviously, a seismic shift from this time last week. So the question now becomes, all right, how does the SEC East shake out? To me, that's only the first of two questions. Does everyone just assuming that Bama's going to Take care of business, whatever that means, against Mississippi State and Ole Miss and going on the road against LSU. Uh, You can make that assumption. I'm not. I'm not making that assumption at all. They lost yesterday, guys. They've played other close games. Need I remind you, a Texas A&M team that was void of a lot of their starters in Bryant-Denny Stadium the week before came inside the five-yard line with one shot to win the game the week before. This could have almost happened the week before. They won by a point in Austin, Texas a few weeks back, playing against a backup quarterback for three quarters. This has almost happened multiple times. It finally did happen yesterday. So if anyone else wants to chalk those games up, you can be alone on that. I'm going to actually tune in. I'm going to watch them. I'm going to see how they look against Mississippi State. Should be a significant matchup advantage for Alabama. Tackles versus rush ends. But then again, I didn't really see those rush ends a whole lot featured in last night's game. So I can't guarantee that 31 and 15 and 41 are a big factor. 15 dropping back into coverage pretty much removes that as a possibility, doesn't it? So that's all well and good on the West. In the East, everybody who wasn't already looking starts to eyeball November 5th, and Tennessee goes to Georgia November 5th. I'm going to do something irresponsible that that coaching staff and roster can't afford to do. I'm going to assume they're going to be undefeated when they go there. They got UT Martin this week which is fortunate, because I don't think there's any possible way you can get that team back this week. So I, the UT Martin game could be all-time ugly, just win the game. And then they got Kentucky, and then they go to Georgia. Okay, when that game happens, what do you think about that? It's not too early. We just talk for a living around here. It's not too early to just start to speculate, because I have already some camps forming. Camp one is, I'm like, bam, Kirby still knows how to coach defense. Tennessee won't hang nearly that kind of number. Well, they may not. uh, But at the same time, I don't know how you discount what you saw yesterday. I don't know how you discount that performance. And I don't know how you discount the, the overall kind of ball that Tennessee's playing right now. In college football, we have found this out time and time again. There's kind of a reverse freeze point where if you can throw the football at an effective level, at an effective enough level, you can throw it against anyone. Now, there are some paper tiger passing offenses out there. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about if there is a certain level, whatever it is, if you meet that minimum baseline of a very high-level passing attack, you will have success on any defense in college football. The rules are structured to let it happen. The game's structured to let it happen. It will happen. You may not hang 52 on Georgia. I'm just saying they will have some form of success throwing the ball. It, it, it's a football game. You know, it comes down to the same thing that yesterday comes down to. Either way, I think it's going to be a knife fight down there. And I think that we are inching ever closer to several of those disaster scenarios. Ole Miss is involved in this too now. Don't discount Ole Miss. You've got Alabama there. You've got Georgia. You've got Tennessee. And a lot of folks out there, outside of this conference at least, are hoping that an upset happens or something definitive happens to where we can get all those disaster scenarios out of the way. This was, to reiterate, the loudest environment I've ever heard. I've been to all of them. I've been to all the big games. I've been to all the big stadiums. We're on on the road every week probably seeing one of, if not the premier games in the country. Never seen anything like this. Ever, ever, ever. These are real-life pictures. This looks like a scene out of a movie. And let me tell you something else that I didn't know until yesterday. Those goalposts are incredibly heavy. They are incredibly thick. They can hurt people. And so, yes, it is, it is a miracle, probably a moderate to major miracle when this stuff happens that no one gets seriously injured. And I know it's not safe, but sometimes it's just necessary. And I thought this was necessary last night. Uh, what an evening. You'll talk about that forever. I, I saw a few people with pictures of small kids in the audience, and I hope they were old enough in most cases to at least somewhat know what was happening. That kid right there, surfed the goalpost of Neyland Stadium out of the gates and down the street to the river, all while smoking a cigar, hat on backwards for good measure, and directing traffic. Who thinks they're going to do that when they wake up Saturday morning? College football. College football, greater than, and then fill in the blank, the rest of the field there. I think we're going to be talking about Tennessee a lot more this week. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Academy Sports and Outdoors was on full display yesterday because I handed out untold amounts of Academy gift cards. Everybody who walked up to me said, Hey, love the show. Where's my Academy gift card? In that order. Unfortunately, by the time the game kicked off, I'd already handed them all out. Uh, It was a great, great Saturday. It was made even more great if you got one of those gift cards from me. But look, if you didn't, that's okay. Your time will come. In the meantime, make sure you understand what this brand means to us, what this Academy Sports and Outdoors brand means to us. It means that you never have to pay a dime to watch this show. It means that we don't have to throw 14 other advertisements in your face. They take care of us solely. They turn the lights on, they send us on the road, uh, they buy as many white t-shirts as I ask for. Literally everything we could ever want is provided our way, but like I always say, if it were some company that doesn't sell anything you care about, that would be the end of it. Thanks, golf clap, we move on. This place has everything. This place has all the sporting goods equipment you need, but it also has all the outdoors equipment you need, and I call it life equipment because there's a lot of stuff that really isn't sporty or outdoorsy. It's just life-related. Do me a favor. If you got one in your neighborhood, check it out, Academy Sports and Outdoors. If you don't have one in your neighborhood, academy.com is your one-stop shop for the entity that makes this program possible for you. Thank you so much to Academy, and thank you to you guys, because I don't really need to tell you this at this point. Our brand is kind of synonymous with their brand, and it's something I'm very proud of. Pride was on the line yesterday in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And one team answered the bell, and one team is left searching for answers. Michigan 41, Penn State 17. I had some things I wanted to know yesterday, and boy, did I find them out. And I think we all found them out. And I think Penn State, in some cases, was the last to find it out. This is kind of tough to see. Nearing halftime yesterday, this is a 16-14 to game by way of Michigan, and it looks close. It was one of those classic... Box score versus observation type deals, because if you just look at the score really quickly, you think, ooh, nip and tuck, it's a dogfight up there in Ann Arbor. And then the video starts to circulate, very similar to the one I shot last year when Ohio State was in town. There was a little back and forth, a little dust up, if you will, because they share a tunnel at Michigan Stadium, so both teams go up the same tunnel. And, you know, there's a little jawing, and eventually both teams retreat to their respective locker rooms. Here was the problem there, friends. Penn State was already getting cooked, and they didn't even know it. They were like a frog that was being boiled to death. But the frog was really giddy because the water had only gotten warm. Frog doesn't know it's getting cooked until it's too late. Penn State did not know. They were getting cooked because the scoreboard lied to them. That scoreboard at the halftime lies quite frequently. Observers knew better. I had watched the first half of this game. I knew better. Director Collins said, this is over. Mid-first quarter, actually. Spoiled the ending for me. He said, this is over. 274-83. to That was the yardage edge that Michigan went into the locker room with, but that's not as bad as it gets. Here's how bad it got. 18-1. to Sounds like a t-ball final, doesn't it? Nope. That was the first down edge that Michigan had over Penn State. I want to restate this again for the passive listeners out there. Penn State went into the locker room with one total first down, and the second half played out about as you would expect it to. Here was the problem, one of many for Penn State, uh, that Michigan just fully exploited. What Michigan did all afternoon was duplicable. They ran all over Penn State to the tune of over 400 yards, 418 total yards on the ground, padlock stat. Uh, Michigan, 28 to 10, total first down edge, probably a padlock stat. Penn State did stuff that wasn't duplicable, like Sean Clifford, God bless him, knee, knee brace and all. He rips off a 62-yard run. It counts, but that's not duplicable. That's not something that you can go back in your bag later on and say, "All right, we need that four or five more times." It just it happens once, and you're thankful it does, but you better find another way to score from here on out. They had a ball tipped up in the air and intercepted pick-six. That's great. It counts. And there's something to be said for being in the right place at the right time and getting your hand in front of the ball that's not something you can count on happening four or five more times in a game. That may not happen again this season. But it happened in the first half. Both of those things happened and they both led to scores eventually. So that's how you had 14 at the half. None of that stuff was going to happen again. And outside of that, they had nothing. Penn State had absolutely nothing. After that Sean Clifford 62-yard keeper, whatever it was, which is really really pretty by the way. Penn State's longest run was 9 yards. Remember last week we had two things. I had two things I wanted to find out. Number one, J.J. McCarthy came into this thing with the highest completion percentage in college football, and I wanted to know, hey, this Penn State crew is not even allowing 50% completion percentage every Saturday. Well, J.J. answered the bell. 70.8% yesterday. Really good day. And he didn't have to do a whole lot because of the aforementioned half a mile on the ground that Michigan was en route to picking up. The other thing we wanted to find out was how this much improved Penn State ground game would fare against the Michigan front. Well, they didn't. They didn't at all. Outside of that long run I talked about, nine yards was the longest game. Michigan, as we've said all year about them, and some people have been slow to react, I think you're realizing now, they're for real. They are a Big Ten championship contender. They are a college football playoff contender. I like this team better than the team they had last year. Not by leaps and bounds. It's not one of those it's not even close kind of deals but they're a very good i think they're a good team and the efficiency that they have at quarterback and have the ability to have it will translate that running game will translate i don't think anyone's shutting them down when if if let me let me say if they were to end up getting back in a matchup against a team like georgia they're not running for 400 yards but man the push they get up front and the way that defenses have been built in general in college football nowadays to defend all sorts of other pinball offenses. It's just tailor-made for them leaning and leaning and leaning. They may only have 16 at the half, but it's a four-quarter effort. You know, it's a four-quarter brand of ball that they play uh, in the most intentional of ways. I love what Michigan is right now, and I love where they're headed. Now, as for Penn State, it is gut check time for them. They're gonna go home, and it's the whiteout week, and they're gonna play Minnesota, and they opened as about a four or a five-point favorite against Minnesota. Don't know if Minnesota's going to have Tanner Morgan. They got Mo Ibrahim, though, and that guy can run it just like the two guys when Michigan ran it on you yesterday. It's gut check time because this is sort of a soul-searching moment, and I don't just mean for that locker room. I mean for the coaching staff, too. Mike Yurcich is in year two as the OC at Penn State. A lot of people are grumbling, rightfully so. Because they moved on from Kurt Scirocca, and he's ironically gone back to the team they're going to play Saturday. Hello, motivation. And they really are not much to write home about offensively right now. And you kind of just get the feeling they are what they are at this point. At least that's how I feel when I watch them. And what they are is probably not good enough to win those major games. They went to Auburn, and they flexed on Auburn. And at the time, I said, look, I think that's very impressive. We'll wait several weeks, and then that game will be a little bit easier to interpret in the form of how much value to put in it. Well, it turns out they just beat up a really, really bad team down there. Still impressive, uh, but it's, it's not the statement that reverberates into the future like maybe you hoped it was at the time. It won't matter. It didn't matter yesterday. Uh, it won't matter this Saturday, even though they're a favorite, and it certainly won't matter two weeks from now. That's the one everyone's got their eye on. Ohio State comes in there. 14 days from yesterday. And, buddy, that won't be close if Penn State does not rapidly improve multiple facets of this team. There's the schedule. And it's nice to get Indiana and Maryland and Rutgers and Michigan State to close it out. It won't matter if you can't take care of business. This little three game stretch here, as we've known all year, is going to define their season. At Michigan, resounding dud. They got Minnesota this week, then they got Ohio State. James Franklin now is 7 and 18 against the big three in his division, Michigan, Ohio State, and Michigan State. Not good enough. I think if he were sitting here, he'd tell you the same thing. Not good enough. There was yet another classic yesterday. We had a field storming in Knoxville. I gave you time, Colin. All right, here we go. There was another field storming in Salt Lake City, Utah yesterday, and this one is going to matter a whole lot, I think, on the West Coast, but it's going to matter in the college football playoff picture too. USC scores 42 points yesterday, and it's not enough because Utah scored 43. How about, by the way, USC and Alabama combining for, what, 91 points and going 0-2 and on Saturday? Didn't think I'd say that all year. Every given Saturday. That's what we live for around here, and that was the strong vibe being given off by Utah and Rice-Eccles Stadium yesterday. This is what desperation looks like. That's what playing a team in wounded animal mode looks like. And you're not that if you're USC. You had a goose egg in the loss column. They had their back against the wall. Um, Officiating was very questionable in this game. There were a lot of things, and the reason I'm bringing up officiating is because Lincoln Riley did. There are a lot of things that a USC fan could look at, that Lincoln Riley could look at, and say, "If, if, if I could just change that or that, man, we may run away with this game. That's all true. But you can't, and you didn't, and Utah won the game. I wish I could feel on any given Monday the way that Cam Rising apparently feels when he wakes up on a Saturday knowing he's got Southern Cal on the schedule. Jesse's doppelganger set a career passing number last year against USC. And then all he did this year was break last year's career passing numbers. He threw for 415 yesterday, rushed for 60, and it was the first 400 yard passing day for a Utah quarterback since Brian Johnson in 2005. There hasn't even been some random game against Southern Utah where someone racked up 400 passing yards. But Cam Rising did it against Southern Cal. Dalton Kincaid's a really good story. Dalton Kincaid's a tight end for Utah. Uh, Up until yesterday, his previous career high for receptions in the game was seven. Keep in mind, Utah has been devastated by injury at the tight end position. Dalton Kincaid, 15 receptions not in October, in this game yesterday, for 217 yards. Big day for Utah. Okay, this keeps all other their goals in the Pac-12 in front of them. They've only got one conference loss, remember, and now they've got the head-to-head against USC. They just take the best two teams in the Pac-12. It's not a division thing, so maybe they'll play again. We'll see. I think this is going to end up benefiting USC. I know that sounds stupid. Hear me out. USC Falls, heartbreaking fashion. Caleb Williams bordering on tears yesterday, which I love to see because that means he takes the regular season as serious as we do on this show. They'll be better for this. I guarantee you, USC will end up being better for this. I guarantee you, they're still the favorite to win the Pac-12 in my mind. I didn't get anything yesterday I didn't expect. I'm the one who told you Utah's gonna win and I'm the same one who told you in the very next breath, I think it'll be good for USC and I think they'll end up winning the Pac-12 maybe because of it. There was this false bubble that I felt building around USC, and and it was false in its expectation level because some folks had started to see Southern Cal undefeated, and they had started to mention them in the same breath with some of the uh, other undefeateds out there, and they don't need to be in the same breath right now as Georgia. They don't need to be in the same breath as Bama or Ohio State. And Bama fell yesterday, but as of last week, they were all still undefeated, and folks who were trying to wish it into existence were starting to talk about Southern Cal. They're not there right now. And they won't be there this season, nor should they be. It's year one. Lincoln riley has been there 10 minutes. But they do have a good enough team to win the Pac-12. And now that we've popped that little bubble, what I felt like when I watched the end of this game is sort of watching from a distance. I felt like, all right, good. Now that you got the, the foolish talk out of the way, now Southern Cal can roll up their sleeves. They can go to work because the game was theirs they could walk away feeling that way. There were several calls, but there were also several areas of misfires and lack of execution that they can control that they could sell their kids on Monday as being the reason they lost this game. And so, in other words, you can sell your locker room on your destiny still being firmly in your hands. There are teaching points regarding officiating. You know, when I was growing up, uh, we, had, we had a phrase don't let umpires, don't let officials break your heart, because they will. Okay, so what you have to do is you have to take care of business elsewhere to the point where the margin is so large that no amount of blown calls could end up costing you a game. If you leave games in the hands of officials, they will crush you. They will break your heart. And that's the teaching point, I guarantee you, that Lincoln Riley will go over. You, you got to tell your kids, you can't control what a guy in a striped shirt does. May make a good call, may make a bad call. Some of them are going to go our way. Some of them are going to go against us like they did yesterday. What we got to do is control what we can control. And we're good enough where if we control what we control, it's 42 to 20. And a bad call makes it 42 to 27. Who cares? We still win. USC in chase mode, I think is going to be the best version of USC this year. I don't need them being chased. I would much prefer that team in chase mode. uh, Because I think they've got the kind of killer instinct that it's going to take to win the Pac-12. I think they will end up winning the Pac-12. So USC right now, they've got at Arizona, they got Cal, they got Colorado, and I'm looking really forward to that date, November 19th at UCLA, and then they close with Notre Dame. But those updated odds tell the story. Those updated Pac-12 odds, it's a very entertaining conference. Oregon is currently the favorite, not mine. I'm saying Oregon's the favorite in Vegas to win the Pac-12, UCLA, not USC. UCLA is the number two odds on favorite. Now, keep in mind, those two play each other this Saturday in Eugene. So one of them's going to have a loss. Southern Cal's off this week. So inevitably, you might as well look at that as saying Southern Cal has the second best odds because someone's going to fall behind them. We just got to find out who it is. Utah also on a buy this week. Now, Utah is my preseason pick to win the Pac-12. If they end up winning it, I will claim I'm right, even though I'm openly sitting here telling you I like USC right now. I think it's going to be a really, really entertaining stretch run out there in the Pac-12. And I would encourage you guys to keep an eye on it. Contrary to popular belief, they're playing entertaining football places other than the SEC. As, as we have always been, our reputation here is a beacon for equality and a beacon for competitive balance. And if we spend five minutes on the SEC, we spend five minutes on the Pac-12. And that has always been our stance and always will be. And you'd be hard-pressed to convince me otherwise. They're watching us in Woodstock, Georgia. Clinton, Tennessee, and Portland, Oregon. How about that? The Big 12, as I mentioned, and have been mentioning, I think the most entertaining conference of college football right now. Did you guys see this yesterday? Hold on, Colin. Let me, let me straighten my mic. I don't, like the, I don't like the non-central location there. And let me take a sip out of the chalai. Some people still claiming that the orange liquid here was the impetus for Tennessee winning yesterday. And if it was, you're welcome. I can't say you're wrong. TCU 43. Oklahoma State, 40. This was pretty incredible because this was a gamecast special for me. I had my own game going on, so this was one I was having to look at the score of before I actually was able to watch the game. I got to be real with you. I'm not going to lie. Apologies to TCU if you need it, but when you're down 17 in the second quarter, I think Mike Gundy's about to run away with the game. When you're down 14 in the fourth quarter, I think that they have sustained their performance and the game is over. And then all of a sudden, TCU's up three when it matters the most, which is the end of not regulation, but overtime. They won this game. TCU won this game. And they stormed the field, and the Big 12's going to issue some ratchet little tweet and a fine tomorrow, and it won't matter because it's worth it. Good for Sonny Dykes. Good for TCU. I I hold in my hand, not really, just pretend, I hold in my hand the ballot for College Football Coach of the Year right now. And I see Josh Heupel's name here, and he deserves to be there. But man, so too does Sonny Dykes. Because that guy figured out a way to elevate professionally and not even have to leave home. He just went across town. He went from from Dallas to Fort Worth. He went from SMU to TCU. It is the first 6-0 start for the TCU Horned Frogs since 2007. And we all remember how crazy that year was. I need to explain to you how wild this season is that Max Duggan is having, the quarterback there for TCU. Max Duggan, according to his own head coach after yesterday's game, continues to play as good as any quarterback I've ever been around. That is a quote from TCU head coach Sonny Dykes. Why is that crazy? He didn't win the job out of fall camp, guys. Remember, we did several segments on this. It was Max Duggan, it was Chandler Morris, and Duggan's playing right now because Morris is hurt. And look at him. And look at the scene there in Fort Worth yesterday. 16 passing touchdowns right now. That leads the entire Big 12. 286 yesterday through the air, 57 on the ground. And Quentin Johnson, you see him right now. That is a freak of nature. And if you're listening, just imagine a freak of nature. Imagine a wide receiver who's going to end up playing on Sundays, and that's him. I hate what's happening in front of me right now, but i got to read it. So. We don't use a teleprompter on this show, except when I screw up. So I just screwed up, apparently. Yeah? Screwed up. Okay. TCU, first 6-0 start since 2017. That doesn't sound as good. But, w- but we have to say it, don't we? Because that's reality. Okay. Well, it's their first 6-0 start since 2017, not 2007. W- w- what was the last time they started 7-0 or 8-0? Let's look that up. It may not matter because of reasons I'm going to give you later in the show. But you know what? Happy times right now. Happy thoughts. I'm not sure what percentage of Spencer Sanders we got yesterday for Oklahoma State, because as I was milling around the Tennessee press box trying to see what the uh, lunch was going to be, I saw a little tweet come down, and there were rumors before this game started that Spencer Sanders was not going to play because he didn't practice all week. Because, was like apparently every other quarterback in America, he's got a messed up shoulder. I mean, Hoops doesn't have a messed up shoulder these days. If you don't have a a screwed-up shoulder, are you even playing college football at the quarterback position? Well, he started, but, man, he wasn't himself. 44% completion percentage, easily the worst day of his career in that department. He was 16 of 36, and yet they still got out to a 24-7 lead, and then they scored six points the rest of regulation. So credit in a lot of different areas here, but most importantly, TCU really buckled down and giving up six the rest of regulation. Like, they were dynamite the second half. And they gave themselves a chance to get back in it. They did get back in it. They ended up winning. And what happens now? What's your reward for being 6-0 for the first time since 2017? You get Kansas State coming into town this week. And Kansas State is a four-point dog, as the numbers opened a little while ago, against TCU. Meanwhile, Oklahoma State, I I would say this is the biggest game in the Big 12 this week. Texas, minus three and a half. Told you guys the horns were gonna be favored. They would be favored in Stillwater, even if Oklahoma State won yesterday. Texas, minus three and a half at Oklahoma State. So yet again, we got multiple headliners in the Big 12. It is a can't miss conference every single week. And if you're not watching, I I question your commitment to our sport. That's what I question, because they're playing really good ball out there. Which brings me to my next point. Colin, is it time? It's time. All right, let me hydrate. Big, big announcement forthcoming. Uh Been a lot of harsh allegations on the show. Levied at me, and I don't deserve it, uh, but I've gotten them. And the claims have been that we show some bias, dare I say some homerism, when it comes to the destinations that we choose for the Every Given Saturday Tour. Now, in reality, we haven't missed a single time. Case in point, was anyone, when the dust settled last night, and when Neyland Stadium was finally cleared, was anyone criticizing me for choosing to go to that game over that train wreck in Ann Arbor, Michigan? Of course you weren't. Because the, the Monday critics have become Saturday crickets. T-shirt idea. That is a great T-shirt Trademark. TM. That's mine. That counts. Okay, so with all of the allegations of bias, let's take a look at the Saturday slate. We got the Cuse at Clemson, both of them undefeated, shockingly. UCLA is at Oregon. Texas is at Oklahoma State. Mississippi State at Bama. I think Herb Street and Fowler have that game. And Kansas State is at TCU. This is one of those classic can't go wrong weeks. But what do we look for? We look to be in the biggest environments. We look to see as many teams as possible. We look to get to as many places as we can go. And you know where I've never been before. I've never been to the state of Oregon. And the every given Saturday tour is headed to Eugene. UCLA versus Oregon, Saturday in Autzen Stadium, Chip Kelly's return to Oregon. If you needed anything more, if you needed a subplot, if you're a storyline type of person and you need to know more than, man, we got a top 10 matchup here in week eight. Man, we get to see see Autzen Stadium in all its glory. Well, you also got Chip Kelly there on the sideline. This is going to be great. Oregon opened as a six-point favorite, and I think that's still where that number is unless it changed in the last 45 minutes. I have never been to Autzen Stadium. And every time I talk about the loudest environments and every time I talk about the the greatest scenes, there's always someone who pops up in the comments section. And they say, okay, great point, but have you been to Oregon? And I sheepishly say no. But that will last six more days. And then we finally get to go to a game at Oregon. And so I'm looking really forward to getting up there. New coaching staff, a lot of energy up there. And conversely, UCLA is playing the best ball that they've played under Chip Kelly. Every given Saturday tour, Pac-12 Pate. Pac-12 Pate. I say it again because I eventually want it to trend by the time that we get up there. I'm extra looking forward to this one. Ah, I felt good, didn't it, Colin? Felt good, Jesse. You know, because some people thought it would never happen. Not us. We know the truth. We know what's inside of ourselves around here. It's not a show that's confined to the SEC. No. we get out when getting out is necessary. And we are getting way, way out. I mean, for us living in Nashville, this is like going halfway to Japan. Uh, We are headed to Eugene, Oregon this Saturday. Okay, let's get back on track uh, because we got several more games to talk about from yesterday. This one was a little under the radar yesterday, but I wanna talk about it for a couple of minutes. Clemson beat FSU 34 to 28. Classic conundrum for me, classic Saturday conundrum. And it was the, the kind of conundrum, we've all been there, you're on the field after a team has beaten their rival for the first time in a decade and a half, and you're surrounded by people, and you can't get to a TV, and you got no cell service and so you don't get to watch the 7:30 game. We've all been there, right? And so Clemson is playing FSU, or at least I'm told they are, but I don't get to watch the game live. So the first impression I had was looking at the post-game box score, and I text Bud Elliott, Budrick, for those in the know, and I said, hold on a second. You're telling me FSU had 10 more first downs. You're telling me they had 90 more yards. You're telling me they were 7 of 13 on third down. They had 206 rushing yards, 6.1 per carry against Clemson. That's a big deal. You're telling me they had all that and they lost and didn't even cover? And he said, go check the middle eight and then compare it to the fourth quarter. And then I realized what he meant. Clemson was up 34 to 14 in this game before it, got a little bit closer in the fourth. Translation, a lot of this was garbage time. And so the box score lied to me, as box scores can sometimes do. One of four on fourth down, I would imagine greatly impeded Florida State's efforts here. Uh, that hurts. That hurt. That's how you end up racking up more yardage than the other team, but not more points than the other team. Because you can go all the way down the field as much as you want. But if you get to fourth down, and then you can't move it any further, and you turn it over... All you did was take up some time, take up some real estate, and not put a dent in the scoreboard. Clemson has now finished even or plus in the turnover battle in their last 11 games. That's a big deal. Uh, Southern Cal's been doing that. Clemson's been doing that. There's some teams out there that have got impressive streaks right now of not turning the ball over. DJ Uyanglile continues to hover in this area where it's not quite at the Heisman conversation level but it's in the ultra-sharp efficiency level. He was 15-23 yesterday, 203, 3 touchdowns, no interceptions. He's just efficient. He's doing everything they need him to do, especially because he's got Will Shipley back there too. Shipley had 238 all-purpose yards. He, he returned a kick. He does pretty much everything. I mean, if they needed Will Shipley to play safety, outside linebacker in a pinch, he could probably do it. I guarantee he knows the defense. I would not overlook the dynamics here. This is what I wanted to touch on. I look at dynamics a lot in this sport because I'm a believer that every stat is publicly available. So if you really want to dig far enough, you could arm yourself with every stat and yet still not know everything you need to know. Because in college football, one thing that was true in 1990 and will be true in 2030 is it's hard to get up multiple weeks in a row, especially when you have a target on your forehead. It's hard to continue to go and Clemson's done it four weeks in a row now. They did it against Wake, and that should have drained them. That was overtime, should have drained them. Nope, they responded and played really, really good ball against NC State, and they had what could have been a sleepwalking spot on the road at Boston College, 31-3, to and then they go to Florida State yesterday. Back-to-back road spot, their double or triple due down, they ended up winning and covering. So what do they get for all that? By week, nope, they get Syracuse coming to town. Now, Syracuse, some of you still really aren't ready to embrace as a top 15 team, uh, but they are. As of today, the AP, let me stress, the AP has put a top 15 designation on Syracuse. What do you think the line on the game is, for those of you who haven't checked yet? Any guesses? What, 10, 20, 30? Clemson minus 13 and a half at home against Syracuse. You know they're done with their road conference schedule? Clemson does not play another conference game on the road, and it is October 16th right now. So that's some interesting scheduling there. They've been on the road a lot, but they've got Notre Dame still. They got some games at home, obviously the Syracuse game. But I'm very interested in some of the conversation that's starting to take shape around Clemson. I don't know why we have to do this, but we do it anyway. Not we, I don't do it. There are people out there who would tell you Clemson couldn't beat Alabama tomorrow. Clemson couldn't beat Ohio State tomorrow. Clemson couldn't beat Georgia tomorrow. Well, Counterpoint, they don't play them tomorrow. And theoretically, even if they do end up playing them, it won't be in October, it won't be in November, it won't even be until late December or early January. And my obvious, painfully obvious point there is, how do you know Clemson is ultimately the team that they are becoming? How do you know that they're a finished product? I would suggest to you maybe they're not. I would suggest to you they're still evolving, as many good teams are this time of year. And so... How do I need to teach this lesson? This team, more than anyone else, should have shown you in the past that what they are in October can be a far cry from what they end up being. There is no team, no brand out there in college football that perfected the art of peaking at the right time over the years than Dabo Swinney's Clemson Tigers. So if you want to start doing your hypothetical point spreads and matchups in October, as if you haven't learned this lesson with them already, be my guest. This is not some prediction they're going to win the national title. What I'm telling you is I'm not ready to predict they won't. How about that? So I'm just going to reserve the right. I don't know which amendment this falls under, but I'm going to reserve the right to not write Clemson off yet. As for FSU, one little thing to keep in mind, these rushing yards yesterday, while they did not end up resulting in a win, keep them in mind, the one thing you're not supposed to be able to do is run the ball traditionally on Clemson. And by traditionally, I mean between the tackles. You're not supposed to do that. And FSU did yesterday. They ran it on Clemson successfully. They're they're running backs. Not Jordan Travis. They're running backs. Popped off 9.9 and 6.2 yards per carry, respectively. So, just tuck it away. Because if someone's trying to blueprint their way past Clemson down the road, maybe it is in a playoff spot for all we know. Maybe it's in the ACC championship game. You're looking for teams. They could do similar things to what FSU did to him yesterday. It's just that you got to end up converting on fourth down so you can actually win when you do those things. Clemson minus 13 against Syracuse. Fascinating Saturday ahead. Fascinating. All right, we've got, i got several more games to get to here. Uh, we're going to rapid fire, though, because I'm responsible. I know there are other things on TV tonight. But um, this is very important. Did anyone happen to catch any of our shows last week when we talked about Texas? Anyone catch that? We put Texas at number four in the JP poll. And that was in one breath. And then in the next breath, what did I tell you? I said, they're going to struggle this Saturday. So yesterday, they end up narrowly escaping defeat. They beat Iowa State 24-21. to And I thought that I had teed it up pretty well to where I would not open my DMs and see a flood of, what about Texas now? What you think about Texas now? I think I got exactly what I thought I'd get from Texas. I put him at number four. Well, the model did. And then in the very next breath, I said, well, look, part of this is, I don't like the spot for him this weekend. They're coming off the OU game. They got Oklahoma State on deck. I don't know that this team has matured enough to where we can just expect them to play to the same standard every week. And it was a classic landmine spot and they almost fell victim to it, but they got the win, and Iowa State was four of six on third and nine plus. Not good. No bueno. And Iowa State couldn't run the ball yesterday, so their only hope is throwing the ball. Uh, They haven't been able to run the ball all year. So uh, some things to clean up, obviously. Always an overused phrase in college football, but I'll say it anyway. This is the best of both worlds, okay? You get the win, and then you get to, if you're Steve Sarkeesian, allow the near loss To jolt your team back into focus, and now you get into the meat, the kind of the the second half meat of that Big Twelve schedule, starting this Saturday when they go to Oklahoma State. What about Miami? (coughs) Look, I got a problem with officiating in college football right now. I thought the officiating sucked in Alabama's game yesterday. I thought the officiating sucked in USC's game. I didn't think it was anything to write home about in this game. Not all the calls are bad. I'm just saying. When we got multiple teams across the country with 13 penalties, 16 penalties, Miami had 17 penalties, just like Bama yesterday. I gotta ask myself one of two things. Either do I think that teams across the board have become undisciplined, or do I think that calls are being made when they don't need to be made? And it could be a blend of both, but I'm telling you there's some bad officiating happening in college football yes, or yesterday, in, but in general, and so not a huge fan of it. But outside of that, 17 penalties for Miami yesterday. They still won the game, 20 to 14. It snaps a three game losing streak. So let's just pause before we say anything else. Miami snapped a three game losing streak. That alone, big deal. Okay? Now, it wasn't a blowout, but it was progress. And we've been critical of Josh Gaddis on this show. And I really have mainly just repeated what other coaches have said. But if you're going to criticize him, you need to credit him. And one thing I'll say, about what Josh Gaddis, the offensive coordinator down there, and this offense have done is Tyler Van Dyke's kind of quietly thrown for 847 yards the past two games. He's got five touchdowns the past two games. And what is obvious is they have adjusted, and they're not trying to do the same thing that they were doing early on. I, I, my personal take on it was they were trying to execute a plan that didn't match the personnel. And maybe one day they'll have the personnel there to execute that plan. But until then, Josh Gattis has had to do what – Anyone at his level needs to be able to do, and that's a just. But not all of them can do it. So credit to Josh Gaddis in this offense now. It's not lighting the world on fire, but it is steps in the right direction. And so they deserve credit for that. Now Miami's three and three. And now they got Duke coming into town. They're about an eight and a half or a nine-point favorite. Then they go to Virginia. They'll be favored there. Then they got Florida State at home. Believe, believe they'll be favored there. At Georgia Tech. Should be favored there. The next time that they are a definitive underdog is at Clemson, and that is 11-19. So that's a little ways down the road. Just keep an eye on them. Kentucky, um, Kentucky deflated the Mississippi State balloon a little bit yesterday. This is yet another situation. I tried to, tried to warn you. We are high on Mississippi State, just like we're high on Southern Cal. And yet, I told you I thought they were going to lose coming into yesterday. Uh, highly rated teams lose all the time in this sport. I did not like the spot at all for them. Uh, they were coming off back-to-back wins that probably had overinflated them a little bit, and it was at home. And the last time they had gone on the road was when they got beat down by LSU, and they got beat yesterday. Again, they had, they, Mississippi State, 13 penalties, 109 yards. I guess all these teams had just become the most undisciplined versions of themselves in decades. Kentucky was four of five on fourth down. That's what we call a padlock stat. They held Mississippi State to 225 total yards. That's a padlock stat. And they were 9 of 9 on third down passing attempts. I would imagine that's probably close to a padlock stat most of the time, too. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm, I, it's shocking I have a voice right now after how much we had to yell yesterday. They, Kentucky, they are at Tennessee on 10-29. I think they're off until then. Yeah, so they got to buy, and then they're going to Tennessee. Tennessee plays UT Martin this week, so we'll see. We'll see. I don't think Tennessee scored 52 on them. I'm going to throw that out there. Uh, it probably just costs Kentucky's more talented than Alabama. How about Ole Miss? This is such a violent stat, but I'm going to read it to you anyway. They beat Auburn 48 to 34. They ran the ball 69 times. Of course, Lane Kiffin did. He ran it 69 times, 448 total yards. Assault. Flat out assault on the ground. Four guys ran for 60 yards plus. Three guys Ran for 115 plus. That's just doing whatever you want to. On the ground, at least. That's doing whatever you want to. Not even needing to throw the ball. Just do whatever you want to. Now, Auburn loses another game. I I cannot find anyone in the coaching or agent industry that thinks Brian Harsin is going to keep his job. I can't find anyone around Auburn who thinks that. So it's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. And that's where the speculation begins. No one knows when. Auburn's on their bye right now. That we know. Auburn doesn't have an AD. That we also know. Some people would tell you there is, there is no benefit in getting rid of him right now. Other people will say, well, everyone else is doing it. We need to do it. And I have no clue. I don't, I don't think that there is a skilled way to go about forecasting that because I don't think the people, whoever or hoops-tever is that's going to make the decision even know right now. So we'll see. Uh, Arkansas, finally, back in the win column. They went to BYU yesterday, 52 to 35. K.J. Jefferson, soundbite of the day yesterday, I thought. Aside from young Jared yelling Pate State material into the phone, K.J. Jefferson had 367 passing yards yesterday and five touchdowns. And at one point, he shook off, I think, the entire Brigham Young defense. And it was really, really incredible. So then uh, Hog Sports Plus gets him on the sideline, and his teammates are coming up asking him, how'd you do that? And he just keeps yelling, I lift weights. Over and over again, K.J. Jefferson. I lift. I lift weights, and you know what? Sometimes that's all it takes in life. Just lift weight, wa- lift heavy weights, as Ronnie Coleman would say, with a few more expletives built in. Lift heavy weights. KJ Jefferson lifts heavy weights, and um, you know they they took care of business yesterday. Arkansas had 644 total yards. Altitude doesn't really matter when you're doing it at that clip. They had to have this, man. They had to have this, and so now they're a three-loss team, and they've They've got a lineup of games in front of them. All of them are winnable. Several of them are losable. Can I see Arkansas' schedule right quick? There we go. Man, look at that synergy. They go to Auburn next. They got to buy. They go to Auburn next, favored. Liberty at home, favored. LSU at home, very tight point spread. Ole Miss at home, they'll be a short dog if that game were played today, winnable. And at Missouri, they should be favored. They could still end up with more wins than they had last year, or they could end up with as many wins. And if you count the bowl game, then they could end up with more wins than they had last year. I'm just kind of trying to get out a little bit ahead of the curve. I'm hopeful. I've got, I've got money on the line with the reprehensible Brandon Walker. And so I've still, look, fingers aren't uncrossed. I've still got the fingers crossed. Uh, quickly, I wanted to address something here. Did you know Stanford beat Notre Dame yesterday? They did. Yeah, they did. How about this little tidbit, courtesy of Stats and Info? Stanford and Marshall have now beaten Notre Dame this year. Stanford and Marshall are a combined 0-7 against all other FBS opponents this year. Gross. Moving on. First half shutout, check. Uh, Notre Dame, first quarters this year. This is courtesy of Tim O'Malley over at irishillustrated.com. Notre Dame. You want to you you know what slow starts sound like? In the first quarter this year, they've got nine three and outs. They've got no touchdowns. They've got a turnover on downs. They've got one drive that just ended in a punt. And they got two field goals, and it's terrible. That, that last part was me, but the rest of it was Tim O'Malley. Uh, yeah, so Notre Dame, 16 and a half point favorite, just lose out, right? Uh, next up, Syracuse playing Clemson this week. They played NC State. This is the third 6 0 start for Syracuse since 1935. This has come out of nowhere for me, at least. This was not on my radar at all in the preseason. It was the second sellout this century at, I guess they still call it the Carrier Dome. There's a point in time, uh, I would would say it's probably about 2007 or 8, where I took all of the stadium names and all of the arena names in America, and I froze them. So it was the Staples Center for me then, it's the Staples Center now. Whatever the crypto arena, whatever, it's the Staples Center for me. It's the Carrier Dome for me. I think that's still what it's called, but even if it's not, it is for me. And they sold that thing out. Big time credit to Syracuse. Top 15 team, they go to Clemson this week. And uh, by the way, whether they win or lose at Clemson, they got Notre Dame coming in there the week after that. If they were to happen to win at Clemson, can you imagine a 7-0 Syracuse coming home to play Notre Dame? Or for that matter, maybe they lose at Clemson and they're in wounded animal mode and Notre Dame does their usual scoreless first half trick and Syracuse is out to a 14-0 lead. We'll see. Oklahoma hung 701 total yards of offense on Kansas yesterday and they still did not cover relative to the closing line. See, if you waited, you could have gotten Kansas plus ten and a half. And if you did that, you covered by the narrowest of margins. OU 52, KU 42. Dylan Gabriel's back for Oklahoma. 403 yards, two touchdowns. OU ran 100 plays. Now, as you know, anytime you hit the century mark in total plays, defensively, we want to know who you play next week. And Kansas plays Texas Tech, I think Texas Tech this week. Just keep that in mind. Let's see, Kansas is... No, they're at Baylor. Yeah, they're at Baylor. Baylor's opened as an eight or a nine point favorite. Just keep that in mind. Keep it in mind. Okay, speaking of games this week, I want to let you know that we have two best bets. The dynamic is very bad for TCU this week. Kansas State has opened plus five at TCU. The model likes Kansas State to win the game outright by one point. Don't freak out. Kansas State plus five is an early best bet for us. Fresno State came through for us with flying colors yesterday, and we're gonna take them again. The model has got its teeth in Fresno. Fresno minus 13. They're on the road at New Mexico. Um, stay tuned, because there are several games that I may move on before the Tuesday show. So make sure you're following at Josh Instagram, Twitter, etc. Thank you guys so much. I mean, we had, we had the best time yesterday in Neyland Stadium. And Like I said, we've been everywhere. I mean, the Renaissance Tour last year, we're on the road 16 weeks in a row. We've been on the road eight weeks in a row so far this year. Well, eight coming up this week. It's the best trip we've ever had. It's the best environment we've ever experienced. The loudest stadium I've ever experienced as a fan or as covering the game. I wish you guys could have been down on the field yesterday. Most of you were eventually. So look at that video. Man, I'm telling you, Colin, after everyone goes home, may pull up an Academy lawn chair, leave the monitors on, and just watch this. This is his evening. What a day, what a day for Director Collin, what a day for Tennessee. What a week coming up for us. We're headed to, we're headed to Oregon. How about that? And who, who's new? A young youth from West Central Georgia would make his way to Oregon for a football game, no less. We're looking very much forward to it. We appreciate you guys so much for being tuned in. For Director Collin, for Producer Jesse, I'm Josh Spate. Take care, we will see you same time, Tuesday night, God bless.